Please take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to Luke's Gospel, chapter 22. Luke's Gospel, chapter 22. Today's text will be beginning with verse number 31. And just as a bit of review to help us here with the context of where we are in Luke's Gospel. We are, of course, on the the night of the betrayal. We are to the point where Jesus having instituted the Lord's Supper at the Passover meal. And again, we've, we've mentioned on the occasions that Luke is not a stickler to the chronology of events. And so he will rearrange things for his own purposes and, of course, by the inspiration of the Spirit of God as well. Sometimes by theme, sometimes to give us pictures, sometimes to help us to see a contrast between two things. And the last time we were here in this chapter, we, we were considering the, the disciples' dispute that they had regarding greatness. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of God? Verses 24 and following again. And it wasn't a dispute of, surely it must be you. It was that dispute of, surely it must be me. That is the greatest. And as we considered that text, in the words of Jesus, as he said, that he was one among them who serves in verse 27 of chapter 22. It helps us, I think, to place that event close to the time when Jesus has demonstrated his servant heart by washing the feet of the disciples. So likely, early in the evening, even before there was the instituting of the Lord's Supper at the Passover meal, that there was this dispute that arose among the disciples about who was the greatest. But again, Luke takes the liberty to rearrange things, and perhaps, uh, we don't know for sure, but perhaps Luke has placed that previous encounter... That dispute among the disciples right next to our text here today where we see Jesus speaking to Peter and telling Peter that he will in fact deny him. Maybe Luke has done that to emphasize the contrast. The contrast between the claims and the hopes that the disciples would demonstrate to greatness. And in next to that, we see their actual weakness. It's here, Jesus. We don't see the event here yet. That's coming in a few weeks. But here we see Jesus speaking to Peter of what is going to take place. Matthew and Mark's gospels, they indicate to us that this is perhaps somewhere along the lines as they are relocating from the upper room to the Mount of Olives, that this these events that we're considering here this morning take place. Now, is there any encouragement to be found with these disciples? So begin reading with me here and, excuse me, verses 21 through 34. Simon, Simon, here speaking of Jesus, speaking to Simon Peter. Behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you 
that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. But he, Peter, said to him, Lord, with you I am ready to go both to prison and to death. And he said, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied three times that you know me. Any honest Christian knows the experience and the reality of failure. Let's just give it its ugly name. Sin. We can relate to that, can't we? Just an honest look at our own hearts and our own lives. And sometimes we experience such failures and such fallings and in our own Christian experience that it even surprises us. How can it be that I am here in this sin? How can it be that I am still here in this sin? And rightly, we have a sense of the guilt that comes with that because we are guilty. And a sense of the sorrow that ought to come to that because if we are a child of God, that's what sin does, doesn't it? It brings a sense of of grief and sorrow and wishing we hadn't done that, wishing we hadn't been there into our thinking. But the danger is as we would go down that road, as horrid and as horrendous as our sin may in fact be, and it is, that our failure and our sin become our focal point. That's the danger. That we become so overwhelmed and so consumed and so focused upon our failures and our sins and our weakness that we begin to descend into a sea of despair and absolute hopelessness and think there is truly no deliverance for me in the midst of this. And as we look at our text here today in one of the best known failures And again, we're not looking so much at the failure at this point, but the prediction of it. And one of the best known failures recorded in the Scriptures were brought here to be reminded that the focus on this text here is on Christ. It is not on Peter. The focus is on Christ. Listen, there is no comfort. There is no hope. And there is no deliverance if we can only see our sin. Now, we cannot ignore it. And we must not minimize it. However, we are to go on beyond that and experience the true comfort and the true hope that is ours if our gaze is set upon our Savior. So that in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our sense of failure and guilt 
and depression and discouragement and whatever else may come, that we be Christ-centered. That's the reason I titled the message here this morning, Christ and Our Sins. Because so much of our, of our thinking is me and my sins. And there is no help there. I see me and I see my sins. And yes, we should. But we must see our Savior. We must be Christ-centered, Christ-focused in dealing with and considering our sin. Now, let me issue one word of warning with this. These truths that we're going to consider here this morning are for comfort to us in our struggle against sin. And they are not to be misconstrued as a license to sin. In other words, we come to be to see our sin in light of Christ, knowing that there is something beyond failure. But we must not allow ourselves in the wickedness and the depravity of our own hearts to take these truths and to twist them into something that gives a sense of, well, I can go ahead and sin because look at what Christ will do for me. He will forgive. It's not a license. But there is comfort in our struggle, in our battle. And for any who would take these truths and to to perceive them and to twist them as something as, well, I'll be all right because look at Christ, look at God's mercy to me. This is that is nothing that is nothing of the spirit of Christ. So be warned against that. And we are all capable of such things. So what I want us to do today as we think about this text. To see our sin in light of Christ. The one who knows our sin. And our need to, in fact, we must turn our gaze to Him. We must turn our gaze to Him in our failures if we're ever going to really get beyond them and not to be completely overwhelmed in them. And so I want us to look at the truths that are found here in this text as we would turn to Christ, as we would seek to become Christ-focused in dealing with our sin and our failures in the Christian life. First of all, we see His prior awareness. His prior awareness. There's one lesson to be learned about people. It's this. People are unpredictable. Now, I know Beth would tell you that I'm very predictable. <laughs> but she's literally a long time. But sometimes I surprise her. <laughs> sometimes it's for the good Sometimes it's for the bad. But we know this. People are 
unpredictable. Even those that you you think you know them so well. You think, oh, I know what they're going to do in this situation. And they don't. Someone you've known for years. Oh, I know them. I think like they think. And, and they don't. Unpredictable. Simon Peter would certainly fit into that mold, wouldn't he? You know, try to predict what Simon Peter is going to do on any given occasion. Now, we know the story looking back. But try to place yourself on the other end of things as you see Simon Peter encountering Christ and some of the things that take place there. What's he going to do? We see on the one hand that there are great affirmations of faith as Jesus calls Simon Peter to take his boat out and he does and Peter just as the the fish are brought in, he falls before him and says, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. The great affirmation, the faith of who Christ is, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, revealed by the Spirit of God. And then, incidentally, not too far removed from that, He rebukes the Lord when the Lord says, this is what's going to happen. He says, no, not so. So he can make these great affirmations on the one hand, but the other hand, he can speak very rashly, foolishly, presumptuously. Who would dare to try to predict Simon Peter's next action? Who would dare? He has the potential for one great shining moment. Or it's going to be another one of those spiritual short circuits. Where it's just like, what are you thinking, Peter? Which is it going to be? Well, Jesus predicts. Jesus tells Peter of what's going to happen. He first of all tells him what what has already taken place, that Satan has demanded permission to sift you. In other words, Satan has not come demanding as though he has a right, but he's come seeking permission. And the implication is, it has been granted. Now, it's not as though Satan comes with with the words of, I want to come and sift him like wheat. That's the benefit of what takes place. There is the sifting process. It's good, actually, in the end product. But Satan's intent is to be destructive. But Jesus puts it in the words of, He has demanded permission to come, and He wants to sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith might not fail. And when you've turned again, you strengthen your brothers. This is what's already taken place. But then look, Peter says, Lord, with you I'm ready to do both to the prison and to death. And here it is. I say to you, Peter, here it is. The rooster will not crow today until you've denied three times that you know me. Jesus predicts Peter's Actions. He speaks with absolute certainty. He speaks with absolute authority. And in fact, there would have been much to have said that this would not take place. I mean, after all, look what Peter has experienced in the last few hours with Jesus. He's been with him at the Passover meal and had the, the Lord's table instituted. 
And now he's prepared in advance. The time of tempting is coming, Peter. I mean, isn't it some help to know something's coming? Uh, I'm going to be on my guard. I'm going to be on my guard against this. And then if that's not enough, at least the sheer number. All right. I might buckle once. But, you know, that happens once. I'm, I'm repenting. I'm gearing up. And here we go. And that won't happen again. Okay, it might happen twice. But it's certainly not going to happen three times. So there's been much to consider that this would in fact not take place at this point because after all, he's been forewarned. Be ready, Peter. But you see, when Jesus speaks of what's going to take place, Jesus is not speaking based upon a studying of a personality here. Jesus is not speaking upon... Just having examined the odds and playing the odds here to see what may transpire. Well, he's done well here. You know, two steps forward, one step back, one step forward, two steps back. It's time for another step back. Jesus isn't playing the odds here. Jesus isn't just stepping back and looking at Peter and saying, I've got you figured. This is what's going to happen. He's not guessing. So what Jesus is doing here, this is based upon his own nature. What Jesus is saying here is based upon who He is as God, as the Divine One, as He is the all-knowing God who knows the beginning to the end, and He knows more than Peter's heart, which He knows. But He also knows every detail of His life ahead. And He just tells him, Peter, this is what you're going to do. You're going to deny three times that you know Me before The cock crows. It's not mere guesswork involved in this prediction, is it? He knows Peter's sin that is yet to be committed. Now, at first glance, we could look at this and think, well, what kind of encouragement do we get from Jesus in this? What kind of encouragement can Peter get from this? Not only am I forced to live with the memory of my past sins and my past failures, I also am here compelled to live with the divine assurance of a future failure as well. Boy, this is great. Just failure on both sides. I know where I failed in the past, and now, according to God Himself, I'm going to fail again. No, perhaps here is where Peter should have said, I'm going fishing, as he does in John chapter 20. I quit. What's the use? It's failure on this end. It's failure on this end. It's failure where I've been. It's failure where I've gone. Where in the world is any measure of encouragement or comfort to be found in this? That's on first glance. But if we give a second consideration, a Christ-centered consideration, instead of a self-centered consideration, there is, in fact, great comfort here. First of all, there's the reality that He is never surprised. The times that you may have been surprised by the depth of your sin, He was not. 
There's nothing unexpected. There's nothing for which he has not made preparation. My sin has not derailed and upset God's universal plan. Folks, you're just not that big in the big scheme of things. And neither am I. There are no surprises. There's no wringing of the hands in heaven. What are we going to do now? I didn't make plans for this. This surprises me. Caught me off guard. You know, just the, the fallacy of those who embrace this open theism that God doesn't know what's going to take place in the future. I mean, how do you deal with a text like this? Well, he's a reasonably good guesser. It's the best you can do. He's never surprised. There's great comfort in that, isn't there? God's not surprised at my fails. I've not caught him off guard. And although to me it's in it's in time and it's in space and it's something that's that's when I sin it's something that's new that wasn't here yesterday or was here a few moments before with God who knows the beginning from the end He's seen it and He's made provision for it. Secondly, all my sin is accounted for. He has paid the penalty for all my sin. All my sin is paid for. That my standing with God is secure. That all of my sins, penalty, sins of the past, present, and future, they are placed upon Christ so that when I do give in to that sin, as horrendous as it may be, that ultimately I can come to the place and I can say, this too, Christ died for this sin. Christ has paid for this sin. God the Father has exacted the penalty for this sin upon His Son. It's paid for. So there is, in fact, great encouragement and comfort in Christ's prior awareness. He's not saying this to Peter just so he can say, I know this is going to happen, Peter. Get it, get, climb into the pit. <laughs> There's great comfort here. There are some other issues that we're going to consider. But there is great comfort. All of our sin has been accounted for in Christ's redeeming work. He knows it. His prior awareness. Secondly, we see His priestly action. You know, certainly there would be a, a great bitterness... And Peter here in these words. Of hearing that Satan has demanded permission to sift you. I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned again. What do you mean turned again? The words there we often translate converted. We don't mean converted in the sense of the initial conversion of coming to Christ, but there is a there is a sharp turning when you turn again. Strengthen your brothers. Lord, I'm ready. I know what he says. Verse thirty three. I'm ready, Lord. 
I'm ready to go both to prison and to death. See, Peter could not imagine any circumstance to warrant disloyalty to Jesus. Matthew's account even becomes more insistent. Where Peter there is recorded as saying, Though all may fall, I will never. And even if I have to die, I will not deny you. See, Peter... Peter's trouble, and it's actually a very dangerous position here, is threefold. Number one, Peter is more confident of himself than Jesus' own words. That's a dangerous place to be, isn't it? He's more confident of his ability to stand firm than he is upon the reliability of Jesus' words, you will deny me. You know, there are times when the proper response to what we hear as truth is this. Be quiet. Just be quiet. And at least, if you're going to say anything, show a spirit of submission to the truth here. To your God. <coughs> the last thing that should come forth from the mouth of Simon Peter when Jesus says, you're going to deny me, is it's not going to happen. Which is more reliable? The words of Christ are Peter's own ability. <clears throat> if nothing else, look at the track record of both. Who do you trust? <clears throat> Secondly, his trouble is, is that he doesn't know the nature of the warfare from Satan. Verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Satan has come seeking permission. It's been granted. You don't know the nature of the one that you're against. And you're about to be awakened afresh to that. And third... Peter doesn't know the weakness of his own faith and the wretchedness of his own heart. Perhaps he should, and perhaps we should. You know, why is it that we're surprised sometimes at the sins that we fall into? Have we forgotten just how wretched we are? <clears throat> I think there's within us at least a hope that, that grace has carried us somewhere beyond this. And then... But the important truth here revealed is not Peter. The important truth is revealed in verse 32, the first part. But I have prayed for you. 
I have prayed for you. We know the significance of those words just on a human level, don't we? I've shared with you on the occasions that I've gone and seen people and talked to people some about the work here and we've seen this, oh, we've been praying for you. We've been praying for Cornerstone. We've been praying for you in the ministry there. Some people that I've not even met before go to the Arbica General Assemblies and... You may not know this, but twice a year I submit an update that goes to the Arabica headquarters, which is sent to all the Arabica pastors on just kind of what's going on here. And I get the same thing throughout the year as a pastor from other Arabica churches. And so I can share what's going on and have had gone to General Assembly and people that I don't really know well or some not at all introduced Cornerstone Chapel Priest. Oh, yeah, we read your letter and we're really praying for you. What an encouragement that is, isn't it? To have those words shared with us. But think about this, the significance of these words from Jesus. When Jesus says to Peter, I have prayed for you. Number one is this. God the Son. God the Son is for you. He is not opposed to you. He is not against you. He does not turn His back to you when you sin. (coughs) Excuse me. He is for us even in the midst of our failure acting on our behalf before the throne of heaven. Folks, if there's anybody that I want praying for me, it's Jesus Christ. And in John 17, we see it. (coughs) That Jesus prays. Not only for the disciples, he prays for the church throughout the ages. We'll finish that next week. To hear that the Son of God is for you, but also, number two, that God the Father is for you. God the Father is for you. That Jesus Christ is this high priest that God the Father has provided for you. God has appointed Him. The Father has appointed Him in His priestly role to restore and to maintain fellowship between God and His people. But this priest who comes, he not only prays for His people, but what does he do? He offers himself as the sacrifice and the substitute for their sin. So that forgiveness is assured on the basis of Jesus' substitutionary death. That my sin, the penalty for my sin has been laid upon Christ. And the righteousness and the, and the, the blessings that were due Him are given to us. His merits counted to us. Why? Because God has done this. And we're reminded back very quickly. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. <coughs> Just what exactly has God done for us? Romans eight twenty eight and following, we know that God...
causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. But what else? Those whom He predestined, He also called. Well, what else? Those whom He called, He also justified. And what else? Those whom He justified, He also glorified. What shall we say to these things? Verse 31. If God is for us, who is against us? (coughs) Excuse me. This is not Paul's denial of opposition. We have opposition, even satanic opposition. But his comment there in Romans chapter 8, verse Verse 31, if God is for us, who is against us? It's not denying that there is opposition. Rather than, it's just emphasizing the utter insignificance and the weakness of any opposition in light of what God has done and continues to do for His people. If God is for us, what difference does it make who is against us? It doesn't matter. And so when Jesus says to Peter, I prayed for you, she's saying, I'm for you. I'm for you, Peter. You're going to fail me. You're going to deny me. I am for you. I am praying for you that your faith will not fail. And when once you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. I'm for you, Peter. God the Father is for you. It's right to express remorse and sorrow and grief for our sin, but we must never stop there. We've got to come to the to the higher truth, to the greater truth, truth that is greater than our sin, and that is the grace of God. God is for us. We are His people. We are His children. And He demonstrates His great love for us in Christ. Let us be those who are in fact deep repenters for our sin. But let us also be those who are great rejoicers in the grace of God. We need to repent deeply. But we need to rejoice greatly. God is for us. To believe that Christ is our ally before the greatest threat to us. And what is that? What is the greatest threat to us? It is the wrath of God Himself. That's the greatest threat. And Jesus Christ is our ally. He 
He's satisfied. God the Father is satisfied. He is for us. Christ, even now, interceding for us. To believe that God is a loving and a compassionate Father whose pleasure is in us as His children. Think of the pleasures you have in your children. I know sometimes it's mixed. Unless you've got a different kind than I've got. And unless your heart's different from my heart, <laughs> I know it's mixed. But the pleasure that God has in His children, because His heart is perfect. He's not turned away by our sin. That God is not looking for the, for the opportunity to, to crush us. <clears throat> Or to condemn us. You know that, that word is something like. After all I've done for you. You ever said that to your kids? <laughs> I've, been, I've done a little bit better than I said. After all your mother has done for you. <laughs> this is the thanks you give. Listen. Those aren't good words. Those are the accusing words. And Satan is the accuser of the brethren. That's not from God. God doesn't speak in that voice and those words to us, does He? He's not looking for that opportunity to just let us have it. He's looking for opportunities to pour out and lavish His grace upon us. And every opportunity is God's. God is for us. Jesus interceding for us. We rejoice in His priestly action on our behalf. Praying for us. By His very presence. A reminder. As though He needed reminding. A reminder to God the Father. Sins of these people have been poured out. Have been paid for by me. His priestly action. Finally, we see here His promising assurance. The last part of verse 32. Jesus' words here offer some great assurance. When once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Boy, I tell you, for every tear of sorrow for that first part, you're going to deny me there's a tear of joy here, isn't there? Two things. One, there is the expected restoration. Peter, when you turn again, when you're converted, in other words, Peter's denial is not going to be Peter's undoing. It's not over. That he will return. Listen, he will return because he is Christ's and Christ will bring him back. Repentance will run its course and Peter will be restored when you are converted. When you return. The second, not only is there an expected restoration, there's also an explicit commission here. <clears throat> he says, 
Strengthen your brothers. Peter, you still have a great task that I am commissioning you to right now. When you have returned, you strengthen your brothers. God is still able to accomplish great things through Peter. See, there are no useless members in God's, among God's people. Granted, some sins are such that you may disqualify yourself some for particular areas of service. There would be, for example, certain sins that would disqualify me to serve as a pastor or as an elder. But God will use His people for His purposes. Even in the midst of failure. It was Peter who at Pentecost took the lead and preached fearlessly to those who had crucified Christ. And he said that. You killed Him. Encouraging, strengthening the brethren. It was Peter who was chosen by the Spirit of God to give to us two epistles of the Holy Scriptures. And some say that you can read through the first and second letters of Peter. And you can be, you're reminded of, it's like Peter has always in the back of his mind this great failure. But also a great sense of being used by the Spirit of God. He knows as he's writing that epistle, those epistles, that he's writing Holy Scripture. He knows that. And so, Peter, through his writings, as recorded by the Scriptures, as preserved for us even today, still encourages the brethren, doesn't he? Anybody been encouraged by First Peter in Sunday school? As Steve teaches through that? He still strengthens the brethren. Rejoice in God's forgiveness to restore us to fellowship, but also to usefulness. Let's abandon the, the devil's cross of, of self-pity that becomes self-absorbed. Woe is me for all my sin. Let's abandon that cross for Christ's cross of full acceptance because all of my sin is there. Let us demonstrate true humility. And even in our failures, serve to encourage others. 
Again, the reality is some sins have great consequences. But also the reality is this. If God limits His work through perfect people, there aren't going to be any. It doesn't work through just perfect people because there aren't any. He accomplishes great things for His glory through imperfect people with all of our failures, all of our shortcomings, and all of our sin. And our calling here is that when we do sin, we deal with the sin appropriately as is necessary. We don't ignore it. But we don't wallow in it either. We go to our Savior. We rest in His forgiveness. We rest in His redeeming work. And we say, Lord, what would You now have me to do? See your sin. And then turn quickly. Turn quickly to your Savior. Heavenly Father, I think we've all been there. Lord, I know I have convinced that my sin was the greatest crime in all the world and that nothing could overcome it. But how great is our Savior? How great is His redeeming work? How sufficient is His righteousness? His perfections? Jesus Christ has not been appointed and called sufficient by men, but He has been designated as such by you. So, Lord, help us. Oh, Lord, that we would not, in any sense of the word, make light of sin, of any of our sin. Oh, but, Father, that we not make so much of it that we can't get beyond it. That we not see the glories and the greatness, the grace of our Father, of our God, of our Christ, of our Savior. We thank you, Father. That Christ has taken our sin. And that one that who is, has taken the penalty for our sin, Lord, we rest assured that He is able to remove the stains of sin that we will commit even this day. We thank You for Your great mercy and Your grace toward us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.